A new era is unraveling before us, and conversation, data, and action are our only hope. Join us to learn together about the future of cities and how entrepreneurs are approaching our present-day challenges. The goal of this podcast is to unite real estate lovers, technology adopters, environment enthusiasts, and creative thinkers that are working toward achieving greater and fair collaboration for all. Come sit with us and discover how investing in these key initiatives improves our built environment, the public discourse, and climate change. We examine diverse issues through interviews and conversations where going off on a tangent is encouraged, hoping to help you become a more nuanced thinker and find comfort in data. Hi, this is Edward Cohen. Today on Tangent, we have the opportunity to learn from award-winning science journalist and author Emily Anthes and talk about her latest book, The Great Indoors, an in-depth research on the surprising science on how buildings shape our behavior, health, and happiness. Emily's work has appeared in the New York Times, The New Yorker, The Atlantic, Scientific American, The Washington Post, The Boston Globe, and elsewhere. Emily has a master's degree in science writing from MIT and a bachelor's degree in the, in the history of science and medicine from Yale, where she also studied creative writing. Hi, Emily. Where does this podcast find you? Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, this podcast finds me in my apartment in Brooklyn, which is where I have been spending basically all my time since March. So I've become very familiar with these surroundings. I see. Sounds like the ideal environment to study uh, the great indoors. Yeah, it has certainly been an unexpected opportunity to uh, think more deeply about, about my home and my own indoor spaces. Definitely. I mean, as you uh, pointed out in your book, we are an indoor species. After all, uh, we spend uh, 90% of our time, eh, North Americans and Europeans at least, spend 90% of our time indoors, which is uh, fascinating because it feels like it's a space that is uh, under-researched or under-investigated compared to the outdoor world. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, it is beginning to change, which is part of what spurred the idea for the book was I was, you know, I'm a science journalist and I was seeing more and more studies come out on our indoor spaces. But I think there's a way in which sort of these settings and surroundings and spaces have become so familiar to us that we sort of take them for granted. We, I think, have assumed for a while that they can't possibly be very interesting We see them every day. It doesn't look like anything interesting is happening. And so we sort of haven't given them their due or thought about them at a, at a deeper level. And now that scientists are doing that, they're finding that these spaces are actually extremely rich and complex. And there are a lot of things going on in them that we can't see and, and don't typically appreciate. Definitely. I mean, well said. Just as an example, uh, Manhattan is only... 23 square miles in size, but we have three times that much indoor floor space. Uh, I think that's uh, an absolutely insane uh, statistic. And uh, I mean, we uh, also have estimates from the United Nations that over the next 40 years, the overall indoor square footage will double worldwide. That means we're going to be developing roughly the square floor area of California every single year until 2060. That's a, that's a lot of uh, new indoor space. Yeah, it's, it's kind of mind-boggling. And, you know, that's something we can't say about the outdoor world. That is not getting bigger, but our indoor world absolutely is and at a, a rapid clip. 
definitely. I mean, in, uh, right in the middle of the pandemic, you published a book about how buildings impact our behaviors and how their design can improve our health and happiness, just as the human species is crying out for a playbook on how to navigate our buildings safely and rethinking if we even want to keep using the spaces the same way or at all. I mean, your timing was flawless. <laughs> why, why do you think that this area of research feels, again, like it's been overlooked or under-investigated up until now? Yeah, I mean, I think it's partly familiarity. I think it hasn't seemed maybe especially sexy. Like if you're an ecologist, for instance, like it might seem more interesting and exciting to go to the Amazon or to Antarctica than to like go into commercial office buildings all over Manhattan. So I imagine that has, has something to do with it too. And then there's just the aspect of taking things for granted that we see or encounter every day that you know doesn't mean we know everything about these spaces. In fact, it turns out there's a lot we we haven't known. But you know, I think it's easy to think there's nothing new to see here when you're in a space for hours a day. Right. I think uh, th there's there must be something to it and. Uh, it's, I guess it's a less catchy headline if uh, there's research being done in Antarctica than uh, being research being done in my corners uh, we work. Exactly. But, uh, but that's changing, I think. That is changing. Thankfully, and uh, just on time. <laughs> um, so with the rise of uh, remote work and the digital nomad class, this brings a historic opportunity to rethink human collaboration for the better not only at work, but also in schools, in our cities, neighborhoods, and everywhere else. How do you foresee a hybrid or a distributed workforce impacting workers' overall health? And what lessons can the real estate industry take from scientific research? Yeah, I mean, I guess I think there's a potentially a difference between a fully distributed workforce and some sort of more hybrid model. And You know, there are trade-offs and there are costs and, and benefits. I mean, I think a lot of workers find things to like about being able to work remotely. You know, they can live where they want or where it makes sense for their families. They eliminate a commute, which is, you know, really a, a detested part of the workday for most people. And, you know, I think there are some circumstances and some tasks for which people are more productive when they're not in an office. You know, you're not being distracted all the time or maybe dragged into all sorts of meaningless meetings. So there's a lot to recommend a distributed model. I think the problem is we also know that when it comes to complex tasks and collaboration and teamwork, there's really no substitute or no good substitute for face-to-face -face communication. I mean, research shows that teams are more cohesive and their performance and productivity is higher when they have more face-to-face -face interactions as opposed to digital interactions. So the question I think going forward is, can we have the best of both worlds and what does that look like? I'm not sure we have a real answer to that yet, but I think maybe we might see some employers who have been reluctant to allow any remote work going towards maybe a bit of a hybrid model where they allow employees to work at home a few days a week, but then they're bringing everyone together in the office maybe a few days a week as well. There's not a lot of good research yet on the effects of that short term and long term, but I suspect we might be seeing some people doing it now. Definitely. I mean, my conservative prediction for a few months has been that if your job can be done remotely, 
there is no way you're going back to commuting five days a week to the office. And uh, I mean, looking at some numbers uh, two years ago, about 3% of the workforce in the US was working remotely. And a number of studies since then predicted that remote work will grow by another five to 10%. But after the pandemic hit, new projections are around 25 to 30%, which is closer to uh, the number of jobs estimated that can be performed remotely in New York currently, which is uh, a third of them in New York City. Uh, this is according to uh, Bloomberg News. So uh, yeah, it's uh, only time will tell, like you said, but we definitely need better tools to collaborate remotely and specific tasks, certain tasks, creative, deeper work will certainly be harder to replicate uh, if you're not physically in the same space. Yeah, absolutely. That's Yeah, that's one reason I'm, you know, there have been some predictions that this is going to lead to sort of all remote work all the time. And I'm skeptical of that for a lot of reasons, but but that's one of them. But I think we might see some more flexible and, and hybrid arrangements. Definitely. Talking more specifically about office spaces, in your book, you make the distinction between analyzing office space usage and actually tracking and measuring human interaction and collaboration within the workspace, whether it is to improve employee satisfaction, productivity, or protect ourselves from COVID inside the office. So what examples from your research can you share regarding uh, data-driven implementations that companies have been making to uh, optimize the use of their space? Yeah, well, so, you know, I assume listeners are fairly familiar with WeWork at this point. And, you know, there's sort of been a, a spectacular fall of, of that company. But, you know, before all that happened, they were doing some really innovative stuff with data. You know, it's a, it was a modern tech-driven company and it had locations all over the world. And members often interacted with the company via apps or smartphones or other devices. And so they would book meeting rooms that way and rate meeting rooms that way. And over the course of its rapid expansion, WeWork was able to gather just a huge amount of data on things like what meeting rooms are most in demand and do they have something in common that we can replicate and how are people rating different features of meeting rooms and what are the most common use cases. So, you know, one insight that they derived fairly early on was that they had all these sort of formal conference rooms, you know, with a projector and a whiteboard and maybe a conference table with 12 seats around it. But the vast majority of meetings that people were booking had just two or three people and they weren't using any of that equipment. And so that made them realize like, oh, maybe we don't need such formal spaces or we need fewer of them. And instead, let's create more sort of small, intimate meeting spaces, maybe more casual with comfortable seating and dimmer lighting as opposed to sort of a formal conference room. So that's the sort of insight that you can make when you just have the scale that WeWork had um, and helped inform their future designs. Very interesting. I mean, yeah, regardless of WeWork's uh, epic uh, valuation overestimations, uh, I think... Uh, I mean, the, the sheer scale that they had and the, the amount of data that they had is, is something that should not be left behind and should definitely be taken into account for uh, future uh, designs and uh, layouts of office space. Another example that you br brought up that I really liked was uh, this company that was trying to figure out why a specific branch was outperforming the other branches 
and they realize that the lunch sitting area, something that sounds trivial or mundane, was actually uh, increasing the, the team uh, collaboration efforts and the cohesiveness of the team. Yeah, well, so this is, you know, an illustration of what we were talking about earlier in terms of the sort of difficult to quantify benefits of face-to-face -face interaction and communication. And they were finding that, I believe these were software designers and developers, but that the highest performing employees were the ones that were having lunch in bigger groups with, you know, eight, 10 people and exchanging ideas at these big lunch tables. And the lower performers tended to, you know, just eat with one or two people. And the company ended up actually using this insight to change the setup of the cafeteria and replace some of the small tables with bigger ones to try to foster more of these interactions with, with I believe, good results. Right. I mean, that's just fascinating because it probably would be the last thing traditional manager or CEO would consider, right, to improve productivity. Uh, but yeah, it's definitely easier to create a, a home that meets your needs. But in an office, we have competing needs of multiple people that use the space. So yeah, it's uh, it's uh, it's something that uh, reminds me of when I listened to uh, WordPress uh, founder Matt Mullenweg, who has been running his company remotely for about 15 years. And there are many aspects of working uh, from physical office that, in fact, affect our productivity and overall happiness, right? It can be something like the temperature in the office, which uh, women on average prefer warmer environment than men to, uh, you know, having to just cohabitate with someone that you didn't necessarily choose to, which uh, would be the equivalent of the professional equivalent of uh, living with a roommate or a house partner that your boss chose for you, uh, which is uh, quite a quite a comparison. Yeah, absolutely. And even beyond competing needs of different people, I mean, for single employees and for single, you know, individuals, our needs change over the course of the day and our tasks change over the course of the day. You know, I'm a journalist and sometimes I'm trying to blast through emails really quickly. And sometimes I'm trying to do really focused, you know, intense writing. And sometimes I'm on the phone all day. And like each of those spaces might or each of those tasks might call for a slightly different environment. And so, you know, it's a difficult challenge. Um, a lot of people complain about their offices with good reason, but I do, I do understand that they're difficult places to design. And I don't think there are silver, silver bullets there, but I think one sort of idea that can be helpful to keep in mind when designing those spaces are the sort of twin concepts of choice and control. So to create different types of sort of micro environments, whether that's, you know, big long tables and an open office like setup, then with like maybe couches and lounges somewhere else or, you know, closed off single rooms for focused work. And then to really empower employees to be able to move throughout those spaces as their needs change and, and depending on, on what they want at a given moment. So that's one way to try to strike that balance. Definitely. I mean, a asset category that's been very popular has been flex office. And I think uh, we're going to see that model even more so become uh, popular uh, in the industry. But uh, you point out to the actual interiors of the office, which should also be flexible or should also be adaptable. Uh, to the tasks at hand or the company at hand, which is a, a very interesting approach. Talking about achieving higher standards in the workplace uh, to create better spaces for all, 
I was happy to see that you covered the WELL certification, uh, which is a tool for advancing health and well-being in buildings globally. It incorporates seven concepts, including air quality, water quality, nourishment, light levels, fitness, comfort, and even mind standards. Uh, what's the key to adoption across cities to create more resilient buildings and experiences? What's the key to adopting well certification style of standard? You mean what is like how can we encourage more building managers and designers to go after it? Correct. You know, so I don't <laughs> I don't think this is what anyone would have recommended. Uh, but I think the pandemic is going to have a galvanizing effect in that regard. I think whenever people really start returning to the office en masse, they're going to be nervous. And I think there will be an incentive for building managers and operators and you know real estate companies to be able to say, like, this building has been certified. It's gone through a process and it is health promoting and safe because of the following benchmarks that we've met. And so whether that's well or whether that's some other certification system, I do think we are going to see an increased demand for certifications and approvals and things like that in the coming months and years, because I think people are now much more aware of how buildings can affect our health. And I think there will be more interest and demand for spaces that, that meet certain benchmarks. Um, you know, absent that... I'm not sure. I don't know. That's a good question. I mean, I think part of it is in helping people recognize that that kind of certification can be a selling point for tenants. And even when the pandemic is over, I think there will be lots of people who want to know that they're in a healthy space. Definitely. I mean, I the way I look at it, if it comes from the city level and in a way that cities aren't focusing on the employer anymore as much as focusing on the employee. So historically in the last few decades, cities have been focused on uh, giving tax incentives to the employer, attracting employers, Amazon HQ2 contest, pageant contest between cities. So I think now cities will be, the cities that will come out of the pandemic more successfully will be the ones that focus on attracting uh, the remote worker, uh, the employee, and I think uh, well, a well certification requirement for commercial buildings within a city could really drive end user demand and worker retention uh, in the city, which means more revenues for the city as well. Yeah, I mean, and I, I wouldn't be surprised if we see stuff like that become touted as a perk the same way that, you know, free lunch has been touted as a perk. So, mm -hmm. yeah, definitely went from a nice to have to a must have. Talking now about cities and our health, without minimizing the threat of COVID that presents to our health, there are some key historical lessons in your book, which we're going to cover later. But there were also other factors in the way our cities were designed that were making us lazier, lazier and sicker before COVID and will keep affecting us after COVID as well. So let's talk about the holistic approach of active design and how it addresses diseases and enables an environment that supports health. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a lot of American cities, in contrast to cities in Europe and, and elsewhere, but 
Um, a lot of American cities and suburbs and neighborhoods have been designed around the car. Like the car has really been given precedence in terms of wider streets and how can we help get drivers to their destination as fast as possible. And the side effect of that has been to make cities and neighborhoods less pleasant to walk in, less safe to walk in, less appealing places to bike and be active. And fortunately, I think there is now starting to be a bit of a necessary correction to that with the rise of what's known as active design. So the idea is how can we create environments that sort of nudge people into being more active just as part of their daily lives, whether that is walking to public transit instead of driving to work or biking to work or walking to the grocery store, uh, taking the stairs instead of the elevator. And the research suggests that, you know, you don't have to overhaul cities entirely, that there are small tweaks you can make that, that really make people more likely to engage in these behaviors. Definitely. I mean, and you bring up the way we've built our most of our cities, which is uh, around single family zoning and around the car. And it's uh, the, the saying of uh, the way we design things that, you know, the same way th these things will design us back. I mean, this is a great example because even though single family zoning served for wealth creation uh, for mo mostly the white population, it also made us more out isolated, more segregated and sicker and lazier. I mean, we're, we're more like in America, we're more likely to walk to our car or inside a, a, a mall than uh, just walk on the street to work because it's not feasible. And that brings uh, other issues uh, with it. And I think another point to the conversation is the prejudice around being a renter, how we've overcome it as a society, but it's still pretty much uh, penalized, if you will, being a renter over being a homeowner. And I think uh, different, you know, different solutions for uh, different housing preferences. So I think we also have to uh, kind of calibrate the, the housing industry in a major way. Yeah, I mean, like you said, uh, focusing on, you know, pedestrian unfriendly cities it's uh you know a study i think you included in your book uh that encompassed 200,000 adults living across 400 u.s counties adults who live in the suburbs walk less weight more and are more likely to have high blood pressure than those living in denser districts even after controlling for economic situations so the the data and the research is pretty clear yeah absolutely On Tangent, instead of sponsored ads, we have Stimulus, where we dedicate a minute of airtime to amplify a small business or nonprofit that is making a difference in their cities. Far too many families are struggling to pay rent as we deal with the long-term economic fallout from the COVID-19 pandemic. The ongoing impact of this crisis has made even clearer that home is a basic need that everyone, regardless of race, income level, or immigration status, deserves. Project Parachute is a coalition of New York City property owners who have pledged to help the most vulnerable renters remain in their homes and provide a vehicle for the real estate industry to contribute toward the economic viability of the city and its residents. This important initiative provides critical relief for families and exemplifies the type of cross-sector collaborative effort that will ensure our city not only recovers, but does so equitably. For listeners who are interested and able to support this noble mission, please go to enterprisecommunity.org and click on donate. That's E-N-T-E-R-P-R-I-S-E-C-O-M-M-U-N-I-T-Y.org. 
If you are an entrepreneur or small business owner who would like to be featured in our stimulus section, email us at tangentcommunity at gmail.com. And now back with our friend of Tangent. Uh, there are many ways cities can become healthier for each resident and create positive change uh, at a large scale. Uh, which cities or countries are implementing evidence-based uh, forward-thinking urban policy that envisions healthier communities? Any examples of uh, cities out there? I mean, I live in New York, and so that's sort of what I know best. But New York was actually an early leader in the world of active design, um, especially under Mayor Bloomberg. Um, you know, he put out, I believe it was an executive order, though I may now be getting that wrong, but essentially declaring that any city buildings, when they were renovated or built from scratch, had to incorporate certain principles of active design under his administration there was a noticeable increase in, in public spaces and green spaces and big thoroughfares that were converted into pedestrian plazas. So I think that's been a success here. I mean, to be clear, a lot more work remains to be done, but there was a noticeable difference under that administration. But similar things are happening in cities around the world. I mean, I was just reading a few weeks ago about, um, I believe it's Barcelona, that was creating these super blocks where they were basically restricting the streets that cars could travel in and converting many of the other streets to pedestrian-only thoroughfares. One thing that I'll be interested in watch and keep an eye on post-pandemic is we've seen cities convert some of their parking space and, and driving space to outdoor restaurant areas and other kinds of social spaces over the summer. And I think it's been a huge success most places. And so I will be curious to see whether cities can find a way to keep some of those changes going and keep the momentum going after the pandemic. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm with you with the outdoor dining. And I mean, the, the winter is another challenge as well, depending where you are in the world for outdoor dining. But yeah, it just gives a completely different flair to any block out there. doesn't matter if it was the nicest block before or the worst. Removing cars uh, and adding more human elements, adding more elements where humans feel comfortable and would want to walk there, I think it's a, it's a game changer for cities. When we look back in 20, 30, 40 years, which practices or elements in the way we design or use our buildings today will we see as absolutely ridiculous or, or outdated that we should have sold for earlier in time? That's an interesting question. I mean, I think one trend that was really clear over the course of the 20th century that I think we are now beginning to rethink was this idea of creating buildings that were basically these hermetically sealed boxes, just really closed off from the world outside. And there were good reasons for this often, you know, sustainability and, and energy conservation was a big one, especially during the oil crises. And, you know, as technology became more able to, you know, mechanically ventilate our indoor spaces, and there were all sorts of other trends that were sort of pushing us towards creating these tightly sealed buildings. And I think it's now clear that we may have gone too far in that direction, and that one of the best ways to create a healthy indoor building is to figure out ways to bring in elements of the outdoor environment, whether that is nature, daylight, fresh air, 
all of those things are really important. And so I think trying to figure out a way to sort of keep the benefits, like we, we don't want to abandon sustainability, of course, but like, how can we start to create spaces that have a bit more permeability, either, you know, literal, actual permeability, or even figurative, so more connections between the indoor and the outdoor world, um, I think the better off we will be. I love the concept of a biophilic design, which sounds basically what you just described in uh, better words than myself. Biophilic design is a concept that uh, focuses on increasing occupant connectivity uh, to the natural environment uh, through the use of direct nature, indirect nature. Uh, so I think, uh, I hope we'll see more of this going forward. Talk about New York City specifically, which we have. Uh, you have been based in Brooklyn over 15 years, so you must have studied both New York City as a resident and as a researcher of the built environment. Any specific reforms that the state or local governments should uh, focus to provide an environment that supports health in New York City particularly? I mean, uh, Mayor Bloomberg did ban trans fats back in the early 2000s, and um, he also provided access to uh, high-quality supermarkets to uh, low-income areas that used to be inundated with only fast food restaurants. So uh, any any specific uh, implementations that the city can do? Yeah, I mean, I guess I would say I've seen enormous progress in the time I've been here, but that inequality remains a huge problem. And so like, there are still neighborhoods that don't have good access to you know, either any public green spaces or well-maintained public green spaces um, to affordable, healthy food um, that are more polluted than other neighborhoods that are poorly or that are less well-maintained. The buildings aren't well-maintained. Um, the public housing system here in New York is still has enormous problems. So I guess I would say that I have seen the city make a lot of progress, but I think too much of that progress has been concentrated in the wealthier neighborhoods. And so I think really it needs to be a priority to bring some of those improvements to to other aspects of the city that have, have sort of been neglected. I agree with you. I mean, there's so many components to uh, providing, you know, so many elements that we need to uh, provide effective class mobility and upward mobility. And talking specifically about housing, which is, I think, where all of our issues begin and end between the years of 2001 and 2018, almost two decades, just 56,000 homes were permitted in Nassau and Suffolk counties, where almost 3 million people live. Uh, and over that same period, just 81,000 homes were permitted in Westchester and the Hudson Valley, where 2.3 million people live. So... Uh, in most years in the past three decades, the New York region has built less housing per capita than even San Francisco Bay Area, which is a re uh, region where housing is notoriously out of sync with job growth. Yeah, I mean, I, I think thinking through all those zoning issues and I mean, they're complicated, but it, it's it's really important. I mean, affordability is remains a, a huge problem here. Definitely. Now let's talk about global warming and how we can survive and thrive in a world that is suffering from global warming. You bring up two very interesting concepts, which are uh, resilient buildings and amphibian architecture. What can you tell us about these solutions and how could these approaches help us combat uh, rising sea levels, for example? 
Yeah, well, so resilience and resilient building is really an umbrella term that refers to creating structures that can withstand all sorts of shocks and disasters, whether they're natural or man-made and, you know, shortages of water, heat waves, hurricanes, wildfires, electricity outages, all of those things. And resilience looks a bit different depending on where you live. Um, A lot of those hazards are sort of site-specific, but flooding is a big issue in a lot of places and likely to become a bigger problem in the, in the decades to come. And there are all sorts of building strategies that we've developed to deal with flooding. You know, one of them is permanent static elevation. So if you go to a beach town and you see a house up on stilts, that's what that is. But a sort of more niche approach that's been gaining a little bit of popularity is, as you mentioned, called amphibious architecture. And the idea here is to create a building that essentially responds to rising water. So there are different ways to actually execute this, but essentially what you're doing is turning a house or a building into basically a pontoon raft. So you're making the foundation buoyant somehow, whether that's by building a hollow foundation or can attach buoyancy blocks, which are like big styrofoam blocks to the underneath of a building. And the idea is that when if and when there's a flood, as the waters rise, the building itself also rises and it floats on the surface of the water. It remains attached to posts or poles or something that are sunk into the ground. So it's not, you know, floating away down the street. But then when the waters recede, it essentially slowly lowers itself back down onto its original footprint. Um, So the idea is that maybe this is an approach we should consider in in certain regions that are likely to see increasing floods. Definitely. I mean, such an interesting concept. And I think it can also be a a great uh, job creator and and revenue generator down the line, particularly talking about cities that are suffering from this and will suffer even more. Miami, for example, or South Florida, I mean, homes located at higher elevations are already seeing values rise. And uh, I've been uh, actually... Uh, temporarily located in uh, Miami area since the pandemic uh, after I left New York City. But uh, I mean, the the potential loss of life is enormous and the infrastructure losses for coastal homes is estimated to be in the trillions of dollars. So if that doesn't convince the the skeptics, I don't know what will. Because uh, I mean, I don't know if cities like Miami can simply follow examples like the Netherlands, which essentially learn how to coexist with water and create a, a robust system of canals. I mean, what the Dutch have done through the centuries and recent decades is, is remarkable, right? They have actually created cities on top of water, effectively expanding their territory without damaging their quality of life or the environment. Yeah, I mean, and that's really one of the keys here is that we need to think about some new approaches that aren't just the same old approach of trying to fight the water back of, you know, levees and storm walls and stuff like that. There's still a role for those sorts of things, but Amphibious architecture really came out of thinking about how do we learn to live with the water? Because that's really what what our future holds, or at least in a lot of places. That's a great way of formulating the actual problem, the actual question that needs to be answered. In terms of collaboration and cooperation between scientists, researchers, and the real estate industry, how could we improve it? I mean, how, what are the low-hanging fruit issues that we could find common ground to tackle first and generate the most positive impact in our communities? 
Well, something that I sort of naively hoped existed when I first started this project, which was like really rigorous post-occupancy data, uh, turned out to be pretty rare. And so personally, that's something I would love to see and I think is relatively low-hanging fruit. I mean, I understand that developers have limited time and money. And once a building is done, the temptation is really strong to move along to the next building. But I think that, you know, a lot of developers and designers are creating innovative buildings and making huge claims about them. Like this office design is going to increase collaboration or this hospital design is going to reduce infections. But then we never see anyone go back to see whether that is in fact true. And so, you know, I recognize that that is still a tall order. Basically, everything is a tall order. But in terms of relatively low-hanging fruit, I would love to see if you come up with an interesting idea or concept that you think is going to measurably improve any sort of outcome in some way, to see developers and designers partner with researchers to come in and really try to quantify, well, is that happening? And I recognize that that's an investment up front, uh, but I'd also like to think that if you can demonstrate that your designer concept really is having an effect in a rigorous way, then that could pay off for you down the line. And it enables you to make those sorts of claims much more strongly. So that, that's the first thing that comes to mind. Got to start somewhere. Yeah, exactly. Now, uh, entering the last part of the conversation here, uh, Emily, we want to get you in the discomfort zone. And we want to challenge you to share uh, an experience that you had that helped you change your mind about a previously believed idea. Well, I don't know that this was, I don't know how, how deep this is, but when I went into this project, I started it because I believed that the indoor environment was important and because design was important. And that's definitely true. But I think I went in thinking, like, oh, I'm going to find 15 things that if we could make these changes to the indoor environment, it will change our behavior and improve our health in X, Y, and Z ways. And one of the things I was able to do in researching and reporting the book was go visit actual buildings with the designers of them. And in many cases, the designers had not been back in years. And it was really interesting sometimes to see how well the buildings were holding up to or living up to the hopes they'd had when they designed it. And so, you know, certain design features that they'd hoped would maybe encourage school kids to walk more maybe weren't having that effect for some surprising reason. And so I think my views evolved over the course of the project to understand, and maybe this sounds naive, but I think when I started, I thought like, well, good design, evidence-based design could be a bit of a silver bullet. And I still think it's really important, but I understand more that it is just part of any solution and it has to be accompanied by political change, by economic support, by societal shifts in values and by these other things that design alone isn't the solution. So that's one way my thinking has changed in the last few years. Very interesting. And yeah, I can, I can imagine the your reaction of seeing the designer's reaction to their uh, own projects and visiting them years later. I mean, fascinating. And I think uh, the conversation has to start somewhere. And I think your book is a, is a great way uh, for anyone in the industry to start uh, that conversation and, and figure out how to solve their specific issues in their, in their cities or in their buildings. Oh, thank you. Um, Emily, what advice would you give your 20-year-old self if you were starting a career as a science journalist today? 
That's a good question. Maybe to take more chances to to put myself out there more. I mean, that's something that I have learned to do, but it has been slow going. And I wish I had done it younger, you know, pitch more stories and don't be afraid of having them rejected. So I, I think maybe to be a bit bolder. Be bolder. I think uh, it's a matter of uh, experience and uh, it, it shows that you've uh, really uh, grown into that bolder person. Oh, thanks. I hope so. It's uh, it's a continued struggle, but I'm working on it. Yeah, it's it's not about not being uh, afraid or scared. It's about uh, doing it regardless. Yeah, absolutely. Um, last but not least, Emily, where can our listeners find you and your work? Uh, so my website is a really good hub for all sorts of information about the book, but also my other writing. That is emilyanthus.com. I'm also pretty active on Twitter at Emily Anthes. Anthes is spelled A-N-T-H-E-S. It's a fairly unusual last name. So if you just Google it, all that stuff will, will probably come up. Emily Anthes, thank you once again for being here with us today. Very interesting insights into the state of our cities and how we can improve our spaces to uh, positively impact our behaviors and our happiness going forward. Thank you. Of course, it was my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. That's it for today. If you like what you heard, please share this podcast with a friend. Thanks for listening to Tangent. And remember, collaboration is our superpower as a species. So stay curious and always be learning.